Are you an early stage founder looking to grow your SaaS? The SaaS Doc Founder Membership is a private community of ambitious SaaS founders where you can get a support network of peers, connect with like-minded founders around the globe, and learn proven strategies from industry experts to help you scale up your SaaS. If you want to get access to peer groups, investor meetings, mentor hours, and more to help you scale faster together, then visit sasdoccom forward slash founder hyphen membership to apply, or just go to sasdoccom and go up to the header menu and click on memberships. And even your application form, if it's right for you, mention the SAS Revolution show to apply for an exclusive discount. Find your SAS tribe and thrive with the SAS Doc Founder membership. There is some job that your customer is trying to accomplish with your product. So if you're familiar with the jobs to be done framework, jobs to be done is an, is an excellent way to identify, okay, what is someone trying to accomplish? What is their aha moment? What activates them to hire our solution? And then we identify that job. And then we do the gap analysis around everything that we and our businesses are doing that prevents them from doing that. <laughs> So you can imagine that this gets us into what is missing in our onboarding? What is missing in our customer experience? What's missing in our product? What's missing in our messaging, et cetera. You can then structure your customer research and this process around customer-led growth into identifying, tactically speaking, what you should do. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaStock the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, uh, Asia Orangio, um, uh, who is the CEO and founder of Demand Maven. Welcome, Asia. Yes, welcome. I am super pumped to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, great to have you on the podcast. Podcast for the first time. We had you speak at a couple of SASDOC online conferences last year. I think, um, I, I, I certainly don't remember SASDOC remote, I want to say uh, that <laughs> happened. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, kind of great to... Now, have you, you know, from conferences uh, onto the podcast and you're in Atlanta, is that right? Greater Atlanta area? I am. I am. I'm based in Atlanta in the US. Now, uh, I know there's been some like heat waves uh, in the US. Has it been affecting Atlanta at all or not really? No, um, not not really, but we are, we are pretty used to hot weather. Uh, so anything above, I would say like 90 is, is pretty normal for us in the, in the summer Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius. I apologize, but, uh, I, I, I don't know either, but, uh, we, we maybe we'll put it in the, in, in the show notes and there's quite a bit yeah. of a SAS scene in Atlanta, uh, isn't there? There's, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the, it escapes me the, the, the founder of Pardot is based there um, and sales loft uh, is another and yourself uh, mm-hmm. of, of course the three big SaaS players in, in, in Atlanta. <laughs> there you go <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah there's definitely uh, seeing a lot of SaaS companies coming out of the, the region aside from the SaaS what is like one or two reasons why uh, somebody like myself who's never been to Atlanta uh, should go I think one of the most interesting things about Atlanta is because of its growing ecosystem, it it's a relatively newer ecosystem. 
uh, it is one that observes what, it, what happens in other cities and in other startup ecosystems. So I would say they are very much a big proponents of standing on the shoulders of giants. We have some incredible companies here. I mean, Full Story is one of them. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of others that, of course, I'm blanking on right this very second. But I, I think there's the fact that because it is a relatively newer space, it is still able to learn and observe what happens in some of the other spaces and therefore can use that to inform go-to-market accelerators, incubators, et cetera. So I think that's the most exciting part about being in Atlanta. Cool. Uh, very good. And, and so, so tell us uh, and tell the audience that, that that's listening or, or, or watching on YouTube, uh, first of all, like, who, who are you? You know, who is Asia <laughs> or Reggio, you know, as a, as a person uh, before we get into, you know, demand maven? All the business stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Who am I as a person? Ooh. Okay. So I, I think of myself as someone who, I mean, when it comes to really anything that I do, it's all about how can we improve and make something the absolute best that it can be with the skills, tools, resources, et cetera, that are available to us. Um, now, personally, I, there's a couple of things that I absolutely love in this world. I absolutely love RuPaul's Drag Race. That is my absolute favorite show on the planet. And I play a lot of instruments. So ukulele, guitar, piano, there's just, there's a lot. I also sing. Uh, those are just a couple of things that I, uh, I like to do. One of my absolute favorite activities is honestly to learn something new. So I just recently got into tennis and I am all about tennis right now. Like that's, I'm learning everything about tennis. Uh, I think a couple of years ago it was golf and I was learning everything about golf. <laughs> so I absolutely love learning new things and diving headfirst into them. Very cool. Who's your favorite tennis player? Ooh. Okay. So, okay. I'm a little biased because I mean, Serena and Venus Williams were always childhood inspiration, but I am learning a lot about some of these younger athletes, people like Coco Goff, uh, Naomi Osaka, and learning about their journeys, especially in this modern world where social media is a huge proponent. There's all kinds of different social pressures and different cultural implications of, of, of a young athlete being in, in sports in general and being in the media. So I'm deeply fascinated by their journeys and also just really supportive on the sidelines. Um, but learning a lot about just the tennis world in general. So I've been learning a ton on the opposite side as well across the pond um, about Federer and, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to totally forget his name, Nadal. Nadal, uh, yes, Djokovic, yep. So learning about the rivalries that are there on the court and off the court is really fascinating. Um, but anyway, that's a little bit about me and what I'm into right now. <laughs> it's good, good stuff. You're into a lot of things. I, I like it. it. Kind of puts me to shame because there's not a lot of. I, I feel like I don't have a lot of time to be into uh, a lot of stuff. Um, but maybe that's just a, uh, an excuse. Uh, uh, <laughs> probably, probably is an excuse. I did buy uh, anecdotally, and whilst this podcast. Uh, hopefully for any new listeners, is is not about tennis and it's not about hobbies. Uh, it is about SaaS and how you can grow your SaaS business. But uh, talking of, let's say, uh, hobbies, I, I bought a paddleboard because I, I live by the sea. Mm. So I bought mm -hmm. a paddleboard a couple of months ago uh, and it came from Amazon and, you know, the box arrived and then it just stayed in the box for a couple of months. Uh, and my reason or excuse was that I thought, oh, like, crap, I bought the paddleboard, but I don't, I haven't bought the paddle and I haven't bought the pump. So it will just remain in the in the box until I buy, you know, the paddle and the pump, which is also probably a very easy thing to do. Just go to Amazon, click, purchase and whatnot. Um, but then it so happened that we, we, we had a kid's birthday party. Uh, so recently I thought I'm going to like unbox the paddleboard and 
a, a paddle and a pump. Uh, and I unboxed it and the paddle and the pump were in the box all that time that it just kind of stayed there. And my, I clearly didn't have the curiosity to open the box to actually see what was inside. And, and, and therefore I've missed out three months of paddleboarding. Uh, and then it so happens that I actually got on the paddle boards and I was pretty awful because I need some lessons. So, uh, um, so yeah, but uh, uh, enough about that. So it's a little bit about me, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Asia, so know a little bit about you as a person, clearly uh, like, um, you, you know, somebody that does a lot of things uh, and uh, you're also the CEO of uh, Demar Maven. Like, so tell us about how you kind of came to start Demar Maven and, you know, why, why did you want to do that? Uh, what is it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'll start with what it is. So Demand Maven is a growth consultancy. We work with SaaS companies, both early stage and later stage on identifying their absolute best growth opportunities, troubleshooting their growth, and then defining go-to-market strategy, especially if they are either entering into a new market or they're really early stage. So the way that we evolved into what we do today is it goes way back into my two previous in-house roles, both for VC funded startups here in Atlanta. Uh, one role, I was demand generation mar- uh, manager. Another role, I was head of marketing. And both of these companies were incredible just from the startup experience, uh, especially if you've ever worked in a startup or a SaaS company, you know how fast paced it can be. The very first hires are often hero roles. They're people who are kind of doing literally everything. And it was, it was incredible just from an experience perspective. And then in my last in-house role, when I was head of marketing, I was at a, I was at a place where I knew that I wanted to start my own business, but it was also, it was also really clear that the company that I was working for, uh, they were going to, they were going to have to make some like really big strategic decisions when it came to raising their next round and then also survival. And so, uh, we were in a, a place where I could very easily go off and start. Well, I don't want to say I could easily go off and start my own company, but I was actually, I was really considering either making another transitionary, um, like taking another role at like a different company or potentially even starting my own, my own thing. And one thing about, um, just my own personal experience working in startups is that, you know, there's always ups and downs. And one of my big strategic questions for myself was, could I offer my skills and my experience to a startup without them necessarily having to take on the burden of hiring a W-2 employee, which is uh, really challenging if you are not profitable, <laughs> uh, especially if, if the, the raising journey or the raising funds is not something that is going to be doable. And I think the answer ultimately was a resounding yes. So I started out really just offering my demand generation skills, uh, kind of like a freelancer contractor kind of role. Um, but then that wasn't necessarily, it's not, not a passion. It's just my true passion was actually growth and strategy. And so demand maven started out as demand generation consulting slash execution. And then it evolved over time into more of a growth consultancy. Uh, and that that's the, that's the story. I, the more that I talked to founders and CEOs, especially ones who needed help, but couldn't afford a full-time marketer or growth expert, the more it was really clear that offering something that they could actually afford and still get the help that they need became a really clear need, really clear demand. 
And now we're working with companies that are well-established, but have challenges finding their, like what the actual best growth opportunity should be, or like, Hey, like we actually are growing, but we could be growing more or faster. And we're not really sure how to figure that out. So that's how all of that uh, expanded and grew over time. As uh, I'm just curious to know, as somebody who is like, say, demand gen uh, expert uh, and helps, uh, you, you know, early stage gas companies around that, how did you find your first customers for uh, Demand Maven? Um, um, yeah, curious to know. it was it wasn't too different than launching a SaaS company. So I treated it as if we were launching, and I'm putting that in finger quotes for anyone who's listening to the podcast, but. I, I treated it as like, I planned it as if we were almost launching like a SaaS. So I, I got meetings with various consultants and practitioners in the space. I met with other founders. I pulled together a few articles that they, that we would then promote and push through various channels. I wrote a lot of guest blogs in the really early days. I made like the big announcement, like on LinkedIn, social, pretty much everywhere that, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving this position, but I'm starting something new. And I want you guys to come with me. And people who were intrigued by the journey, like followed, they were really curious about how and what I was going to do next. And then those who needed my help were naturally finding me because of the amplification of the message. This was not like a big, like, you know, product hunt kind of style launch where we're like generating a big giant list and sending it out. It was actually really small scale, but that that's exactly how I did it. Uh, I basically just had a lot of conversations with people, made the announcements, made sure that I shared and let everyone know what I was doing next. And it, it was so well received that people would then start referring me and recommending me. So that's how all of that started. Cool, good stuff, and uh, and, and certainly, uh, I mean, we uh, we and I think I stumbled across you, I think last year, but clearly, like you know, people in the, the network, I think it was Twitter was probably the channel um, where we kind of first uh, started to see and saw the profile and saw you know what uh, what a good fit uh, it was for the SaaS talk audience, uh, as well as I could see um, you, you know I think perhaps either some of your followers or some of your customers. Uh, were, were people that we we knew, uh, you know, in the in, in the SaaS sort of audience. So uh, um, I'm not sure if I ever mentioned, you know, how we uh, we, we, uh, we we came across you there. But uh, just to know, Twitter as a channel seems to be a lot of the our community, uh, you know, uh, quite active on uh, on Twitter for sure. And certainly, I'm probably not as active as I should be uh, on Twitter. <laughs> how, how many how many tweets do you send a day, Asia? Oh gosh, not not even. Uh, zero actually most days, <laughs> uh, but I am far more of a reply and retweet with like a quote. Like I, I like to join in on conversations. I like to see what other people are talking about and just join in on the, on the combo. Uh, I also like to, if I think a tweet is particularly interesting or if there's some content, that's really interesting. I'll, I'll retweet, add some context. Um, but I also go through sprints where I, it seems like I'm tweeting every single day, multiple times a day. And then there are months where I'm not. <laughs> so it's definitely like a come as you are, come as you go kind of channel. There are some though, like consultants that I know, founders that I know who treat Twitter, like it's a primary marketing channel. So they're in it every single day, even if they're not actually in it, they're scheduling everything. Um, they still treat it as if, you know, it were like a daily constant thing, which I think also works as well. And what about, I mean, quickly, before we get into the, the meat of the podcast, Clubhouse, sure. yes, no, are you, you, in it? you 
You in it or not? Uh, I love the idea of Clubhouse so much, but the actual execution and delivery of Clubhouse, I am not a big fan of. So there's just so much. I, I don't use it to answer your question, but I also... I don't dislike the idea, but I think the delivery and the mechanism through which people experience it is, is it could leave something to be wanting. I think for those who don't absolutely love it, I feel like you either love it or you hate it uh, using it. At least it's not my personal favorite. However, I, I think I listened to a few, like I've joined like a few different rooms, listened to a few different conversations. Um, I have not hosted rooms myself or uh, run or moderated any conversations. So it's hard for me to say that I've had the full experience, but so far I am not a big user. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, today we wanted to talk about the sort of three to four steps that early stage SaaS founders, SaaS companies, you know, should be considering as they push to get towards 100K in MRR. Um, and I wanted you to take me through, because I don't know what these steps are. I mean, like, I, I could probably have a think about it. And and uh, and uh, I'm sure when you go through this, I'll be like, yep, yep, yep. Uh, but uh, let's kind of go through this, because obviously this is your, your your bread and butter. This is what you do. This is, you know, how you help, you know, SaaS founders, you know, and companies uh, on a daily, weekly basis. So uh, let's start. Step number one. You know, what should a SaaS company be, you know, considering uh, in that first step as they push towards 100K MRR? Yes. Okay. So I want before we get into the first step, I want to set some context. Yeah. So if we're if we're on the journey to 100K and MRR, uh, I I want to make some assumptions really quick um, for those who are listening. If you're starting from zero, like you've got zero customers and you want to get to 100, that's a really different path and focus than someone who, or a company who is at 50K in MRR and wants to double it. So if you're at the zero mark, then this podcast is still going to be super valuable for you. But the, the, like what you tactically do is probably going to look really different than if, if you've already got like a thousand customers and you're trying to get to like 10,000. Um, so I just want to set that context and set the stage for anyone who's listening and who's like, okay, well, I'm at zero uh, and I want to get to hundred K and MRR but the first milestone is actually maybe five or 10 K in MRR. And that is likely going to be a not super scalable path and not like a, um, super robust engine to start. So I just wanted to throw that out there, but digging into the very first step, let's just make the assumption that like you're at the 25 K or maybe you're at the 50 K mark and you want to get to hundred. Usually what teams struggle with at this phase is they struggle with identifying the absolute best opportunity or lever to pull in order to grow. They might and probably are already growing in some kind of way. Uh, But what's challenging is, okay, which lever do we pull and which lever do we pull first? So really the first step is identifying that. Which lever do we ultimately want to pull And also, where do we expect this growth to come from? If you've got some paying customers, you probably have a good sense for what segments are the most attractive or at least the best paying or highest LTV. Uh, So the first step is actually really doing this audit or analysis, if you will, of the customer base and also of the business itself. So first step that we're going to do is we're going to sit down and we're going to analyze the business, analyze the customers and come away with some ideas 
on a critical business opportunity is, is what we call it internally. Um, another way to think about this is what is the one KPI that we could improve in order for us to 100% see growth? Is that activation? Is it acquisition? Is it retention? It's probably in one of those three buckets. It could also be in a fourth bucket, which is improving revenue. Um, these are pirate metrics, by the way, for anyone who's listening. I'm just I'm just using that model as a way to uh, uh, explain what different types of growth we can see. But it's probably in one of the three buckets. Maybe the fourth, if you've got relatively efficient revenue uh, and you want to maybe increase its efficiency. But it could be we need more paying customers. That would be acquisition. Could be we need to convert more of them. That could be activation. Could be actually we should keep more of them. Maybe we can get negative churn or um, improve our retention model so well that we get more growth that way. So that's the very first step is really just analyzing everything and really taking a look at the customers, really taking a look at the business and its performance and seeing if we can come away with some gaps there. How long does that step usually take uh, when, again, when you're kind of working with a business? Yeah. So it really depends on how well the business is currently tracking and measuring everything in the first place. So if, if, you're, if you're in the technical world, you're probably familiar with technical debt. Uh, there is a such thing as analytics debt where we've gone too long not measuring anything, which means that now that we want to analyze it, we can't come away with anything because we haven't been measuring anything. Sometimes it's the they've been measuring a few things, but they're not able to tie that to customer data or revenue um, in any kind of meaningful way. So we don't necessarily know, for example, how much a customer is actually worth. Uh, maybe it's also hard for us to see how uh, worthy or how profitable our enterprise clients are versus our maybe like self-serve SaaS customers. Those kinds of things become a little bit sticky just depending on the kind of business that you have. But Usually it takes, I would say, a couple of weeks, maybe, uh, if you don't really, if you have a lot of data, maybe longer. If you don't have a lot of data, then it really becomes a question of, okay, well, how do we get the data that we need to make the right decisions? And if you're in that bucket, that can take a lot longer. So if if we don't have Google Analytics installed or we don't have product analytics or subscription metrics, then it just means that our ability to analyze will be delayed. What about step, step number two then? What do we what do we do next once we once we've done step number one? Okay, so we've analyzed everything and we've come away with a few. Uh, I want, we'll call them hypotheses or theories on. Okay, if we were to improve these core metrics, then then we would likely see growth. The second thing to do is to identify where that growth and who that growth is specifically going to come from. I mentioned earlier if you do the analysis of your customer base in addition to how everything is performing, then we also should probably then take some hypotheses around, okay, but what customer segment is that growth actually going to come from? At the end of the day, with all of our businesses, it's because someone said yes to our product and they kept saying yes over and over and over again, month over month. It sounds really obvious um, to explain it that way, but growth has to come from a segment. If that's the case, then we can make another assumption. If it comes from a segment, then we either need to convert more of them, acquire more of them, or retain them at a higher rate. So then it just becomes, after that, a, a scenario around where we get to plan around, okay, well, how do we actually do that? So first step, obviously analyzing everything. Second step, now we're actually going to identify, okay, what is the customer cohort that this growth uh, idealistically needs to come from or realistically? 
And then we get into the third step, which this is where it can go in a number of directions because <laughs> it, uh, I hate to say it depends, but there is a really strong framework that we can use to identify tactically speaking, what we then do to uh, get into like, what are the actual growth experiments and projects? The process itself is one that's relevant. I would say in practice, it isn't um, new in that it's something that we've never done before, but I think that its terminology is pretty new and it's called customer-led growth. This is an approach that has been widely evangelized by two other growth consultants and experts that I really personally admire. Uh, Claire Sullentrop, if you've ever heard of Claire, and then Gia Laudi. Yes, okay, I see some head nods. Um, they are some of my absolute, just their inspiration for me personally, and then also some incredible colleagues and friends. Um, but Claire and Gia have been talking a lot about customer-led growth. And it is an approach and a framework that we have also leveraged at Demand Maven for our clients. And we've seen some incredible results. But basically the entire practice around it is there is some job that your customer is trying to accomplish with your product. So if you're familiar with the jobs to be done framework, jobs to be done is an, is an excellent way to identify, okay, what is someone trying to accomplish? What is their aha moment? What activates them to hire our solution? And then we identify that job and then we do the gap analysis around everything that we and our businesses are doing that prevents them from doing that. <laughs> so you can imagine that this gets us into what is missing in our onboarding, what is missing in our customer experience, what's missing in our product, what's, miss what's missing in our messaging, what's missing in our upsell strategy, what's missing in our cross-sell, et cetera depending on where your business opportunity is. So whether you're focused on acquisition, activation, et cetera, you can then structure your customer research and this process around customer-led growth into identifying, tactically speaking, what you should do. Uh, in theory, it sounds really like, okay, well, there's a lot of moving parts. Like how do we, <laughs> how do we actually structure this? Um, but within this third step, there's easily, I would say like five to six more that we could certainly break down and get into. Um, but that is the bird's eye view of how strategically we approach uh, a challenge like identifying our best growth opportunities or troubleshooting growth. Yeah. And, and just say, obviously, I, I was nodding when you mentioned Claire and Gia, and they're coming up on the podcast soon. Uh, we haven't, awesome. yet haven't yet recorded it, uh, but uh, I, I know it's scheduled in the calendar uh, at some point. And uh, maybe we should speak about customer-led growth uh, as, the, uh, as, as the topic. So uh, 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 that's good to know. Uh, and then what about this kind of like, the, certainly for the podcast today, as you said, there could be like multiple steps, but this this fourth uh, step uh, and, and final for, for today's kind of like podcast that we could be looking at, you know, to help get us to that 100K MRR uh, figure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the way... Typically, the way that we think about growth, especially like if you're at 25K and you're trying to get to 100, or if you're trying to, if you're at 50K and you're trying to get to 100 or what have you, um, usually what we're looking for is we're looking for either a combination of experiments to run to help us uh, test, so to speak, if something is going to help us achieve more of that growth. And, and usually what we find too is that 
when you're in that 25K to 100K bucket, it's usually not just like one tactical thing. It's usually something that needs to, uh, it's usually an approach that needs to be addressed across the board for the business. So it's not about just like, oh, well, let's just turn on activation emails and just call it a day. Usually it's like, we turn on activation emails. Then we also maybe try segmenting over here. Maybe we also expand the website. Maybe we also run this particular campaign. It's usually a combination of these things. So we're trying to identify like what are the actual experiments and projects that we can execute that would give us a uh, the desired outcome or the desired result, which is growth or an improvement in some kind of way in some KPI. The second way to think about this is what are the systems or processes that need to be put in place that are also going to guarantee us growth or at least give us the best chance to. Um, experiments and systems, those are things that uh, have varying definitions. Different teams define them differently. But I, you can think of them as if with an experiment, you don't necessarily expect it to work per se. Uh, it could. And if it does, awesome. If it doesn't, then you've learned something. A system is something that is consistently done and it is ongoing. Think of this as like organic search or content marketing or even demand generation. An experiment, however, might be what if we turned off our opt-in credit card requirement and switch to opt out. That's more of like an experiment that could positively or negatively impact growth. Um, you don't know if it's going to work, but it's something that based off of everything that you've done, your research, what have you, you think it has a good chance. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we look for when we think about growth. And when we think about based off of everything that we've done in the previous steps, now that we've gotten to this, now we can actually start tactically defining um, what to do and when and how to do it. Is there, is there like a, a rule of thumb where you kind of suggest certainly to the early stage founders in terms of how much time they should be spending on systems versus uh, experiments? Because uh, again, maybe we, we've sort of heard or seen like anecdotally or, you know, perhaps sometimes maybe founders might obsess too much about experiments and changing the button from red mm. to blue and so on when actually maybe that's not the most high value thing to be doing at a certain stage anyway. Um, but yeah, what, what, what is your thoughts from your experience in, in that blend of system versus experiments? So certainly mm -hmm. we don't want to be doing zero experiments uh, or uh, and, and, you know, one or the other. But uh, yeah, uh, well, welcome your, your insight in that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. The way that we think about this is it, it's really about, well, one, if you can afford to run the experiment versus something that is far more predictable and um, whether short-term or long-term will, will generate results. I think that the earlier stage the company and maybe the more under pressure they are to show results, maybe they're funded and they've got a year before they raise their next round. Uh, this is kind of where it just really depends on the business. But um, we usually tend to recommend like a 90, I would say maybe even an 80, 20 split on focus 80% of your time on systems, things that are pretty proven and going to work, you know, with relativity, of course, to your business versus the 20% experiment. And if you're going to run experiments, they should be ones that are most likely to generate a really clear result. And then in that it is a yes or a no, <laughs> um, and also one that is going to most likely impact the bottom line. So changing like a button from like red to blue, for example, probably not a high impact experiment, but adjusting the model 
uh, adjusting channels maybe that you're investing in. So trying Google ads, for example, for the first time ever, even though you have no clue if it'll actually work. Those are far more worthy experiments. Um, I I would be thinking big swings when we're thinking experiments. Mm -hmm. They're probably not like small A-B testing experiments like on the website or things like that. They're probably business tests. You can think of them as business experiments. Um, let's try going after this audience or, or not. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I encourage when it comes to experimentation. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for, for clarifying on that. And uh, I, I guess kind of like the final question as we, we come to the, uh, the, the top of the podcast. Yeah. Well, uh, where can people find you online? We know that you're on Twitter uh, and, and you like to engage uh, with other people's uh, uh, tweets. You're not on, pod, uh, on Clubhouse. Uh, yet. Uh, but where, where can people find you? Learn more about Demar Maven. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So the first place is, is definitely Twitter at Asia Arangio. You can find me there. Uh, and then there's also demandmaven.io. So that is where all of our free resources are, our content. If you want to learn more about the work that we do, you're more than welcome to go there. But apart from that, I am I am an open book. My DMs are always open. If you have any questions, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm I'm more than happy to help if I can. But in the meantime, yeah, I think that those are the top two places. Um, and yeah. Awesome. Well, look, Asia, uh, fantastic speaking to you. Really enjoyed it. Uh, learned a lot uh, as well. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's hugely valuable, uh, you know, for our, our, our community as well. Um, so looking forward to pushing this uh, and also looking forward to having you back at SASA conferences, uh, you, you know, uh, down the line uh, as well. Uh, so thanks so much, uh, Asia Rangio, uh, uh CEO and founder of Demand Maven. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.